Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Thank you for your support, for you tuning in to this weekly podcast. I truly appreciate it. As part of reviewing clinical advances and innovative therapies in various malignancies, today I host Dr. Amir Zidan from Yale University to talk about advances in myelodysplasia and acute myeloid leukemia. Um, you know, again, when I was in training, there was very little to do for myelodysplasia and for acute myeloid leukemia. These are two diseases of the bone marrow. And for listeners who are not in the medical profession, the bone marrow is this factory that produces the white cells that fight infections, the red cells that carry oxygen in the blood and the platelets that prevent bleeding. And somehow the bone marrow stops working and some patients develop myelodysplasias, others develop acute myeloid leukemia, of course, among other diseases. I've asked Dr. Amir Zidane to come in to this show and to review with us some of the therapies and some of the changes and the innovative approaches to these two entities. Uh, we had actually, I had seen Amir several weeks back during the uh, uh, 2021 American Society of Hematology meeting, and there was a lot of new stuff coming out during that meeting as well. So hopefully we'll be able to shed some light onto newer therapies and newer trials for these two diseases, myelodysplasia and acute myeloid leukemia, unprecedented progress, truthfully. And before I air the show that I taped with Amer, I would love for you to um, find the podcast and to subscribe to it, rate it, write a brief review, and don't forget to refer a friend or a colleague to the show. You can watch all of these episodes on my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Also, you can visit my website, www.shadinabhan.com. Message me there and let me know how I am doing. Without further ado, Dr. Amir Zedan on Healthcare Unfiltered. Amir, first of all, thanks for taking the time to come on Healthcare Unfiltered. I really appreciate, although I don't know, I don't see you wearing the Healthcare Unfiltered t-shirt. We have to talk about that. But let's uh, let's start by introducing yourself to listeners. Uh, and I am also very curious, in part of your introduction, you have to tell us about your travel, because you travel, I live vicariously through you, through um uh, the pictures that you post and one of the destinations that I want to go to be inspired by you, by the way, is the pictures you posted when you were at the Maldives, you posted these amazing pictures. I, I went crazy. So tell us about you, what got you into AML MDS and what got you into travel? Yeah. Thanks Shadi for invitation. This is a great broadcast and I always look forward to all the different editions. I, I think you cover a variety of subjects and it's always interesting to see what's going on. I'm originally from Jordan. I came to the U.S. in 2004. I'm currently an associate professor of medicine at Yale. I direct the hematology early therapeutics research as well as the myeloid malignancy disease associated um, research team. Um, I focus clinically on MDS and AML for both clinical work as well as um, research. Um, in terms of um, traveling, I think this is something that I always enjoyed. 
um, I've been lucky enough to be able to visit more than 60 countries. And I think one of the nice things about academia is um, you get invited to different places and conferences internationally. Unfortunately, during COVID, that, of course, has been a problem for all of us. Um, the Maldives actually is a place I always wanted to go. Um, I wanted to go during uh, in the past, but uh, the opportunity never came through. And what happened actually after COVID, after we had the first year of COVID in which we could not um, travel anywhere. And I had a 10-day uh, period in my schedule in which I thought, where can I go in a place where I cannot see anybody? So <laughs> there is no chance I can get COVID. And then the Maldives made <laughs> most more sense because, as I'm sure you know, it's a country of many islands and each island has only one hotel. It's like very small islands and very minimal number of um, tourists on each island. So it was a perfect setting. But I, th I think the views, the nature scenery is, is among the most amazing I've, I've been. Wow, you, you've been to over 60 countries. Yeah, and I, I think it's... Uh, you know, I think we are living in a world where traveling is much, much easier. Um, it's amazing, actually, some of the invitation I've gotten, you know, I had the opportunity to speak in Bali, for example, in the American Society wow. of Thematology highlights after Ash 2018. And after that, I was invited to Sri Lanka, actually, by the American by, by the Sri Lankan Society of Thematology. Um, so I went there, I, I gave some talks, I, I, it's... It's amazing. Like I had the chance also, I was invited to China. So I, I think it's something where, um, you know, you can mix some of the academic work that you do with some traveling. And um, luckily, we are able to do a lot of our work remotely, as I'm sure you you know, yeah. in terms of research. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Amir, what got you into uh, myeloid malignancies and, and hematologic malignancies? Was it something during residency, fellowship? What got you uh, into that field? Actually, it was uh, during medical school. I, you know, since I was little, I, I knew I wanted to go into medical school. I'm, I'm sure you are from the same area. And, you know, since you are little, they instill into this that you should become a doctor. So I grew up kind of thinking that I want to be a physician, but I wasn't sure on the specialty until medical school. As a fourth year medical school, um, one of my first rotations was actually in hematology and oncology. And we had a little um, kid, he was like eight years old with um, advanced Ewing sarcoma. And he was mostly in the hospital for palliative care because he has not responded to any treatment, um, which were very limited. And in Jordan, we have very good clinical care, but we don't have uh, clinical trials. So it was like frustrating not to be able to offer the patient any treatment and just work on their symptoms and that kind of got me interested both in uh, doing more on hematologic malignancy, myeloid malignancy, AML, MDS, but also um, in terms of uh, doing clinical trials and that's what made me come to the U.S. That's wonderful. So let's, we're going to talk about MDS and AML. Um, I have to tell you, so I, I mean, I'm older than you, I'm not going to give my age, but I'm going to tell you that when I was in residency and fellowship, MDS as a disease of myelodysplasia, which I'm going to ask you to simplify for listeners, was really viewed as it's a disease of older people, some people, most people need no treatment, and some of them become um, develop leukemia after a while. 
this is simple terms. And then as things progressed, it almost became its own entity as, 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 as a disease, um, uh, judging for how ASH views these, these diseases. So let's start by when we say MDS or myelodysplasia, what, what is that? What is, how do you define that entity? Yeah, that's actually a very good question because I think MDS is a somewhat difficult to conceptualize even for some physicians who don't do the disease on ongoing basis. I think it's interesting because it has a full spectrum. Uh, with MDS, you have some patients where you do nothing except uh, observation of the patient every three months with routine blood counts and you don't intervene all the way to recommending allogenic bone marrow transplantation from the first visit you are seeing the patient. So it's a very uh, large spectrum, both in terms of the biology, um, the clinical course, as well as the treatment uh, recommendations. And now we are starting to understand more how the biology and the molecular genetics connect to the clinical course of the, of the disease. But usually there are certain features that exist along the entire spectrum of MDS, which are bone marrow failure. So it's a form of bone marrow failure, meaning that the bone marrow is not functioning well. So it's not making blood counts. Um, you have uh, neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, anemia, and those complications, as well as uh, some degree of progression to acute myeloid leukemia. So around one third of patients with MDS will progress to ML. Um, at one point, um, ineffective hematopoiesis is a, a result of abnormal maturation, dismaturation within the bone marrow, and that what leads to the cytopenias. Uh, patients with MDS, um, I think, as you mentioned during your introduction, they tend to be older. So the general age or the median age is in the mid-70s. So I think this is another aspect that makes it more challenging compared to other diseases because you know when your average patient is 74, 75, that limits a lot of um, some of the aggressive interventions that you recommend in some patients. So, 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 do we know what causes myelodysplasia? I mean, I, I obviously realize it's a disease happens in older folks, but you know, frankly, most cancers. Most cancers happen in older folks, whether heme malignancies or solid tumors. Do we have an etiology for myelodysplasia? Yeah, so the most patients, you know, as, as we do with, I guess, with many other cancers, what we call de novo or idiopathic, because we don't um, know more than 80% of the time. And around 10 to 20% of the time, it's uh, secondary or therapy-related, meaning that it results from a previous um, chemo or radiotherapy uh, exposure due to another cancer. That's an entity um, defined as therapy-related myeloid neoplasia by, uh, by the WHO. The incidence of this is actually increasing because um, the, the survivor cancer, uh, survivorship after cancer in general is increasing. And we have many patients who live many years now after breast cancer or prostate cancer where they receive some kind of uh, treatment. Then there you have secondary forms of MDS that are not therapy related. So those patients would be a minority of patients who had Down syndrome or some other congenital conditions, genetic predisposition. Um, but for the most patients, we usually say it's you know um, somewhat really hand waving interaction between genetic predisposition and environmental factors, which are really difficult to define because in most families you end up only with one person who has MDS and, um, you know, so it's not 
clear why the like this particular person and not the other the siblings or you know um, got that uh, type of uh, disease. I do think that the biology now is being explored better. There is this uh, entity, uh, clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential chip, which has been defined as certain alterations, somatic alterations in in the genes uh, that are common myeloid malignancies that occur in patients with normal blood counts, uh, not patients actually, I should say people, because it happens in almost uh, 10% or higher among people who are older than uh, 60 years old. So it's quite a common phenomena, and we are realizing that many of those patients um, are at higher risk of developing myeloid neoplasms. However, most of them do not develop it. So even within this group of people, uh, we still don't fully um, know what are the reasons why some people develop myeloid neoplasms and why people don't. So so you mentioned something about um, myelodysplasia, which is this bone marrow failure. So the, you know, basically there are some inability of the bone marrow to produce the cells that it normally does. Why does it happen that sometimes the bone marrow cannot produce anything like no platelets, no white cells, no red cells, but some other times only the red cells they can produce, but you still have normal white cells, normal platelets, and both of them are still myelodysplasia. So there's more of a you know, this ineffective ability to produce the cells is not always all types of cells, like could be one or another. Correct, yeah. So it happens on a spectrum. So anemia, ineffective erythropoiesis is the most common feature of MDS. So that's more than 80 to 90% of patients with MDS will have anemia. Now, especially in more advanced forms of MDS, usually you have some degrees of thrombocytopenia or neutropenia as well. Some patients will have isolated thrombocytopenia or neutropenia. That's not common. I would say that's probably less than 10% of, of patients. But you are right. The spectrum is varies. Um, there has been new studies showing associations between certain genotypes and certain phenotypes in terms of the blood counts and uh, PLAS count. And, uh, um, but I think the bottom line is that the presentation is so variable that it's very difficult to put every patient in, in, in a box. I think that ineffective erythropoiesis is a dominant feature in all uh, versions of MDS. So it's not common to see someone with isolated thrombocytopenia or neutropenia. But for the most part, um, ineffective erythropoiesis is something you often see. Do you still call myelodysplasia as pre-leukemia or do you view myelodysplasia as a completely separate disease and leukemia as a different disease? Yeah, we think of it more as a spectrum. I don't like the term pre-leukemia because I think it tends to um, uh, sometimes make the not only the patients but also the physicians underestimate the severity of MDS because um, we'll probably talk about this later, but the most common reason for death among patients with MDS is not progression to acute myeloid leukemia. Most patients with MDS die from complications of the cytopenias, of the bone marrow failure, rather than progression to acute myeloid leukemia. So when you talk about pre-leukemia, many patients are so focused on not developing acute leukemia. However, we try to emphasize to them that when your blood counts are quite low, this can be as, uh, as problematic and as life-threatening as someone with acute myeloid leukemia. 
In fact, when you have excess plus, especially close to the range of 20%, so currently the WHO defines that if you have 20% or more plus in the bone marrow, that's acute myeloid leukemia, while if you have less than 20%, that's within the MDS spectrum. And of course, that's an arbitrary cut point. Um, you know, many times you don't think that someone who has 18% plus versus 21, 22% plus will have different biological you know, behavior in terms of the clinical course. And we often actually treat the patients um, similarly many times. However, we do understand that um, myelodysplasia um, has a full spectrum. Um, I do tell patients it's a cancer from the get-go because I, I get to see patients who have never heard the word cancer before and they've had MDS for years and nobody told them that this is a cancer. They tell them it's a syndrome, it's an anemia, it's a pre-leukemia. So I think it's important for them to understand because it can affect um, their perception of the need of monitoring, going on trials, you know, management when it's needed. That, that's a good point. So let, let's uh, so so let's step back a little bit. So you, you have a patient that comes into your office and you diagnose myelodysplasia. What tests are you going to do to decide on management? Because honestly, Amir, when I was in residency, you'll have to guess basically how long ago this was. The treatment of myelodysplasia was erythropoietin injections. That's really it. And GCSF and grow and GCSF. So actually there was a paper was in blood was combining GCSF and epigen. That was really the treatment of, um, of MDS. That's how long ago you have. <laughs> so, 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 so you have this patient comes in, you diagnose MDS, take me through your thought process of how you're going to evaluate this to reach a decision of what to do, whether it is doing nothing or doing something. Yeah. And, by the way, like ESAs continue to be the mainstay of treatment of most patients with, uh, with MDS. But of course, since then, we had uh, several new treatments that have evolved, and it's a very active field. Um, in terms of like the first visit in, in, in the clinic, my first um, mission usually is to confirm the diagnosis of MDS. As a tertiary center, many of the patients come to us for a second opinion, or sometimes third or fourth opinion. So the patient has been already diagnosed somewhere um, with MDS. However, uh, you need a very good hematopathologist because sometimes it can be tricky to diagnose um, MDS. And there are actually several trials that show discrepancy between different pathologists in defining MDS. So we always ask for the slides to be sent, or sometimes we do a new bone marrow for the patient to confirm. Um, the second thing is you also have to exclude other things that can look like MDS uh, to the pathologist. So the MDS can see dysplasia, and this is why actually generally don't like the term also myelodysplasia because myelodysplasia can result from many things. Drug Myelodysplasia means that you have abnormal maturation within the bone marrow, and that, but that can result from many things, including drugs, in, um, you know, uh, including uh, B12, folate deficiency, um, certain rare um, metal deficiencies, copper deficiency, um, uh, LGL. So there are different things that can look like uh, MDS, but they are just dysplasia. So myelodysplastic syndrome refers to the condition, to the cancer that is associated with um, uh, dysplastic changes in the bone marrow. So I usually send all of these tests, um, especially copper deficiency. I had patients 
and B12 uh, deficiency. I had patients who were diagnosed elsewhere with MDS and they turned out to have B12 and folate uh, deficiency or copper deficiency. So it's very important, especially if you are thinking of treatments um, beyond DSA to make sure you are not dealing with, with something else. Once you have made the diagnosis, your next stop will be at trying to risk stratify or prognosticate for the patient. Um, because as I mentioned, it's, it's unusual in the sense that the treatment uh, varies all the way from observation all the way to recommending bone marrow transplant. And the way we do it right now is we look at the bone marrow plasts, how many plasts does the patient have. We look at the blood counts and we look at the... So how, how, do you do, how do you do, don't digress, but I'm curious, how do you do, and by the way, for listeners, I may know the answers to these questions, but I ask usually, I probe my guests because <laughs> I serve as a reporter for you. Uh, yeah. But um, when you say you count the blasts, I mean, this is very subjective, right? I mean, the hematopathologists are going to look under the microscope and say, eh... 20%, uh, 15%. What, what do you, what, how, how does that work? No, that actually has not changed much as well since your days of doing MDS. It's, it's still a pathologist looking under the microscope. And usually the recommendation is that you have a very good uh, aspirate of the bone marrow, specular, good quality aspirate. And then usually they would count 200 cells in the aspirate. And then they would give you a percentage of those, how many of them are plus. You are right that um, one of the problems we have um, in MDS, as I mentioned, uh, studies have shown some um, uh, variability between the, the same bone marrow biopsy being seen by different pathologists in terms of their diagnosis of MDS, but also in terms of how many plasts do you have. So some might call 5%, some might call 8%. And I think in general, um, this, can, uh, this can be an issue uh, more on a clinical trial enrollment, for example, when you have like an 18% PLAS in the bone marrow versus 21% PLAS, it might not biologically be that different. There is definitely an overlap, but technically if you are less than 20%, that's MDS, so you cannot go on an AML trial for an older patient and the other way around if you are more than 20%. So some of these cutoffs um, are interesting from a classification point of view, but they don't necessarily always affect um, how you treat the patient. Okay, so that's the first thing you said. You'll check on the number of blasts. What else do you do? Yeah, so we look at the karyotype, see what is the cytogenetics, because those have been shown to be the most important uh, or one of the most important predictors of outcomes of patients, survival, as well as um, progression to acute uh, myeloid leukemia. So you need to send for metaphase cytogenetics as well as fish fluorescent and cytohybridization. We do these tests uh, routinely um, and uh, we also look at the blood counts. And you mix all of these together using different um, classification schema tools. Some of them also add the age or they add uh, transfusion dependency, etc. And then you come with different uh, scores. Now, the most common used ones is the revised IPSS or International Prognostic Scoring System, or as well as the WHO-based prognostic system. However, there are more than 20 of these different systems. At the end of the day, what you come to is putting the patient in one of two big groups, either what we call lower risk MDS or higher risk MDS. And those are big differences in the management. So trying to put the patient in the right group is very important. So who's the lower risk and who's the highest risk? Yeah, so depending on which schema you are using, uh, for example, in the revised IPSS, 
you have two risk groups very low and low those are considered lower risk and then you have an uh, high and very high and those are considered higher risk and then you end up with the intermediate risk group so this intermediate risk group there are different ways in which you uh, can classify these patients um, ultimately this is important because with lower risk disease you tend the goals of treatment are different than the high risk in the lower risk disease your goal of treatment is quality of life is to reduce the complications from cytopenias to try to uh, keep the patient outpatient by minimizing infection bleeding minimizing complications of anemia however currently we don't have treatments that can prolong survival or um, change the natural history of uh, of the disease for lower risk patients in higher risk disease on the other hand the survival is generally very limited uh, can be uh, less than a year basically for untreated disease as bad as acute myeloid leukemia so in those patients the goal is to change the natural history of the disease generally that happens by getting the patient to a bone marrow transplant if the patient is um, a candidate for bone marrow transplant and of course because the patients on average are in their 70s many of those patients are not uh, so we often treat them with hypomethylating page uh, hypomethylating agent based approaches so those are the most common treatments for high risk mds azacitabine decitabine and most recently the oral version of decitabine what we call cedex cedazoridin with decitabine this is an oral version that was approved in 2020 uh, for high risk mds and we'll get into that. Before we do that, when we talk about, I still want to hone in a little bit on this low risk and high risk. I know that there are so many of these classifications based on all of these factors that you mentioned, right? The age, the blast count, all of these things. But tell me about the chromosomes, specifically the karyotype. Are there specific chromosomal abnormalities that automatically will put you high risk category by itself? By itself, it's not because you have to reach... Um one and a half basically to be in the higher risk you have to be more than 4.5 points so depending on the cytogenic abnormality they can get you close to it but if your counts are absolutely normal and your plasts are low they might not be enough by themselves however um, many times these things tend to go hand in hand meaning that if you have complex or bad karyotype for example complex karyotype it tend usually go hand in hand with low blood counts. So it's not that you often have discrepant, like, you know, very bad carry type, but you have normal counts. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a constellation of all of these uh, factors. So what I heard you say, and we're going to go through this in a little bit. So the low risk, oftentimes you may do nothing because in the high risk, you definitely want to do something. And then the intermediate risk is... Um, We'll go over that because it's probably could go either way. But let's talk about the low risk a little bit. Are there low risk patients that you would treat? Yeah, so it depends on, on their blood counts because technically you could be a lower risk MDS patients. Your blood counts, let's say you have mild anemia. So if your hemoglobin, let's say, is 10, 11, you might not be symptomatic from it. So you're probably not going to do much in this patient. You are just going to have the patient come every few months for blood counts however as the blood counts worsen if the patient is symptomatic from anemia or they start needing transfusions you often want to intervene on that patient so uh, and we'll talk about the treatments but yeah. so what, what, do you, what do you do for a low risk patient that gets the counts worse yeah so if, if the main issue is anemia 
um, the main option usually is erythropoiesis stimulating agents. So usually you use these drugs in patients who uh, are most likely to respond are the ones who don't need frequent blood transfusions and the ones who have low erythropoietin level. So we usually check the EPO level. Um, in patients who have high EPO level or have frequent transfusions, they are not likely to respond to ESAs. So on those patients, um, you have a number of options. One of them is to try ESA with GCSF, as you mentioned. Another option is off-label use of linalidomide. So linalidomide is approved for deletion 5Q MDS. So if you have deletion 5Q, lower risk MDS, those patients have almost 65% uh, chance of transition independence with linalidomide. So that's one option. However, even if you don't have deletion 5Q, around one quarter of patients with MDS would respond to linalidomide. So we would consider it in someone who is not responding to erythropoiesis stimulating agents or less likely to respond because their EPO level is quite high. Um, a new drug that has been approved uh, also in 2020 is losfetercept. So this is a transforming growth factor, Peter Lingen. And what does it do is basically it looks uh, or it, um, it traps, it's an antigen or it's a, a protein trap. It traps these ligands from uh, activating the transforming growth factor pathway. This pathway leads to an effective erythropoiesis. So by disrupting it, you are improving the erythropoiesis and leading to improvement in the anemia. Uh, it was shown to actually work the best in patients who have ring sideroplasts. This is a form of uh, abnormality in MDS where patients have accumulation of iron in the mitochondria around the nucleus in the shape of a ring. So we call it ring sideroplast. Those patients with lower risk MDS and ring sideroplast, which by the way is associated with a specific molecular alteration called SF3B1. This happens in most of these patients they have a response rate of around 38% of transfusion independence with losfetercept. So those are the main options. Other options also that are available for some patients with lower risk MDS includes the use of hypomethylating agents, which we typically use for higher risk, but we can do it in lower risk patients who are not responding to other treatments. But also uh, we consider immunosuppressive therapy um, with ATG and cyclosporin in some patients as well. Interesting. Um, Amir, um, tell me, how do you utilize iron infusions in patients with MDS when you are going to use the uh, um, erythropoietin and uh, red cell growth factors? Um, uh, I ask this because it's, it's a common confusing um, issue for, um, for students, fellows, and even general practitioners. Yeah, so I'm not sure if, if you meant iron chelation. Uh, so in, in general, um, um, we don't tend to give iron in, to patients with MDS because um, they are often having an increased iron absorption because of their anemia, and often they are transfused. So they actually have iron, iron levels. We actually tend to run into the issue of um, iron accumulation in them. And many times uh, for patients with MDS, we are using iron chelation therapy especially in lower-risk patients, because buildup of the iron on the long run can cause problems with, uh, with the liver, with the pancreas. Um, so iron chelation is actually one of the somewhat controversial subjects in, in MDS, uh, because we did not have studies that showed improved survival with iron chelation therapy. But we have a lot of um, retrospective data, as well as a recently conducted 
uh, randomized clinical trial which showed even free survival to be better with chelation um, called the Telisto trial. Because you, you run into the problem of iron overload when you're giving a blood transfusion, right? I mean, if you, but, but there are many patients who are, have low risk MDS that may have not required a lot of transfusion to have iron overload and you're giving them growth factors. For these patients, you just give them the growth factors and I don't know, how long do you wait before you say, I tried and it's not working? Like, is there an actual cutoff? Yeah, so usually we try the erythropoiesis stimulating agents for uh, eight to 12 weeks. So if it did not do anything by 12 weeks, it's not likely that it's going to improve the transfusion needs. I have to say that one of the uh, issues I see in the community is that the ESAs are not being dosed at the right dose uh, because ESAs, um, as you know, they use it also for patients who have anemia from kidney failure. And in that setting, uh, the ESA dose is much lower. So the ESA dose should be, if you are using erythropoietin, for example, you, you want to use 60 to 80,000 units, international units each week um, for a good duration. RNS, we want to use 500 every two to three weeks before you say that the ESA is not working. Sometimes we get patients who are getting much smaller doses. Uh, so I, I make sure that the dose is optimized and the patient has already received eight to 12 weeks before you move on and say the drug is not working. And when you say the drug works, in patients who require transfusion, they become transfusion independent. And those that probably don't require transfusion, you probably wouldn't, I mean, just like increasing the hemoglobin by one, two, like is there, is there, I guess, what are the def definition when you say it's not working? Correct. So the, the standard definition or the best response you want to get to is transfusion independence. Transfusion independence means that you're not needing transfusion and that's usually measured in eight week period. So if you have eight weeks without transfusions, that's transfusion independence. However, some patients you get, you know, defined responses, uh, the international uh, working group criteria responses, which define them as um, increasing the hemoglobin of one and a half above the baseline and transfused or uh, a reduction of 50% or more in your hemoglobin needs, basically. Um, so if you are getting, let's say you are getting eight units or 10 units uh, every um, two months, you are down to two to four units. So you might not be transfusion independent, but your transfusion needs have significantly um, reduced. Uh, sometimes in the community, this is another issue that we see sometimes in the community is that the patient continues to need transfusions and actually the transfusion amount has not improved. Like, you know, the patient baseline was six to eight units and they are still getting six to eight units every two months, but they are kept on the ESA for one or two years. And the reason is because the patient says, I feel better, um, you know, but I, I, generally that's not a good reason to keep the yeah. patient on a treatment that has not really changed their transfusion needs. So then the high risk, you mentioned the, uh kind of buffet of treatments. And I think the ones that confuses um, people, I would presume is, I mean, it's a huge difference between bone marrow transplant, which we know not everybody can get because you need to have a donor, although obviously you can have a matched unrelated donor, but, and then you have the chemotherapy and so on. So how do you, let's, I'm gonna, let's say a 55 year old individual who obviously can get both. How do you determine whether this is somebody you're gonna proceed with transplant 
with its own complications that I'm sure many of our listeners are aware of from graft versus host disease and, and, and others versus the hypomethylating agents and other type of chemotherapy? Yeah, that's a good question. And actually, these two treatments uh, are not uh, mutually exclusive. So many times we end up doing the hypomethylating agents as a bridge to transplant rather than instead of transplant. So your first step is always like determining whether the patient is a transplant candidate. And there has been a lot of improvements in, in transplant eligibility over the years. Um, you know, on the theme of like, I think some of the misconceptions that I see in the community is I, many patients not coming to us um, uh, despite having high-risk MDS and being initiated on hypomethylating agent treatment by their doctors. And let's say the patient is 68 because their um, primary oncologist thought that 68 was too old for transplant. However, we actually routinely, and many centers routinely would transplant patients who otherwise in good performance status up to the mid-70s, 75. And uh, recently, we actually have randomized studies. Um, transplant studies are very difficult to do in a randomized fashion. So typically, how we do it is what we call biological assignment studies, meaning that if the patient has uh, a matched donor, they would get randomized to transplant. If they don't, they do get randomized to continuing the HMA. We have two studies, one from Europe and one from the U.S., that showed up to the age of 75 that going to bone marrow transplant uh, actually improves the three-year survival of those patients. So I encourage everybody, like, even if the patient is in their late 60s or early 70s, um, have them see at least uh, a transplanter or an expert to consider whether transplant is uh, something that they can have. What's the data on transplant? Uh, if we take a um, hundred patients who are on with MDS, just you know, hodgepodge of MDS, hundred patients, what are the expectations uh, for these transplanted hundred patients in terms of mortality, transplant-related, non-transplant-related, GBH? What, what do you tell your patients when they get transplant? Because I tell you, I, I mean, I never want to get an allogeneic transplant. I feel it's a horrific type of a, and I've, I've, I've covered a lot of transplant patients. Yeah, yeah, I, I imagine. I, I think um, transplant um, in terms of supportive care, in terms of um, um, using high resolution matching, so getting better matching for patients, whether related or unrelated, as well as uh, um, antibiotics and other forms of support have all improved, which has significantly reduced the transplant-related mortality compared to 10, 20 years ago. So it's definitely still a risky procedure, but I think the, the risk has gone down to a degree where it's allowing us to transplant people who are in their 70s, as, as I was saying earlier. So I, I do think um, the risk of dying from the transplant and the risk of the disease, uh, both are linked to uh, the baseline of the, of the patient in terms of their age in terms of their comorbidities, in terms of their uh, biology of the disease, the risk uh, group of the MDS. Um, but if you lump all the patients together, we generally estimate around a 40% chance of long-term survival with uh, transplant. Again, that's as a big group. And of those, we estimate the risk of relapse around 40%. 
So most patients with MDS actually who undergo bone marrow transplant, they uh, if they die, they don't die from the transplant itself. Most of the time, if they die, they die from the relapse of MDS and the complications that come afterward. The transplant-related mortality, again, varies, but it could be all the way from 10 to 25%, depending on um, the risk, the, the factors that we discussed in terms of the patient risks as well as the disease risks. What's hot and up-and-coming in MDS? What are you? You were at ASH um, several weeks back and, and so on. What uh, struck you as uh, really interesting in MDS and uh, recognizing that you can't really sum it all, but what's really stood out for you? I think what stood out actually uh, is the, the amount of research that's going on. So MDS, I think, as you mentioned, uh, for many years, we really did not have new treatments. Those hypomethylating agents we discussed, azacitidine and decitabine, were approved uh, in the years 2004 and 2006. So for 15 years, we did not have any single drug get approved, which amazing when you think about solid oncology or even leukemia and AML, where we had eight, nine drugs approved since 2017. So MDS has always lagged behind in terms of um, um, the, the clinical uh, research. But this has changed in the last five years where the um, interest uh, has peaked as I think new and interesting agents are being tested both in lower risk and high risk MDS. So right now, for example, we have six, at least six large randomized studies uh, of uh, high risk MDS uh, that are ongoing, which again is unprecedented in, in, in MDS to have all these uh, randomized studies going at the, at the same time. I think what has been somewhat disappointing is that two of those uh, studies uh, have uh, released press releases. Uh, we still don't see the data of the randomized phase three showing that they did not achieve the primary endpoint um, despite having encouraging phase two data, single arm or randomized phase two data. Uh, one of those, the Panther study, uh, which used a drug called pibonidistat. So pibonidistat is a NID8 uh, activating enzyme inhibitor. This is a pathway that's upstream of the proteasome. So uh, this drug inhibits um, this enzyme. And in early phase trials, this has been shown to increase the CR rate from 20% uh, to 50% um, in a randomized phase two trial, as well as triple the duration of response from 12 months to 36 months. So there was a lot of excitement about this drug. Um, however, the Panther study was just um, released and it was actually presented um, in ASH uh, this year where there was no difference between the azacitidine monotherapy versus azacitidine with people uh, nidistat. The CR rate on that trial uh, was close to 30% between the drug and uh, the combination and the monotherapy. So this was, I think, um, somewhat disappointing, but uh, one of the main uh, findings of, of this ASH. Another drug called EPR246. This is an agent that works on TP53. TP53, uh, as the audience knows, is associated with many cancers, more than 50% of cancers. But in MDS, like in other cancers, having TP53 mutations is very bad. It tends to confer um, high chance of death, even after bone marrow transplant, less than 20% of those patients would be alive uh, long-term after transplant if they have TP53. So this drug has also shown early phase one, phase two data 
in patients who have TP53. And by the way, the way it works by mis, uh, by correction of the misfolding of the TP53 so that it's functional again. The response rate also was 40 to 50% CR rate. However, the phase three of that drug also was press released that there was no advantage in the or there was some advantage in the complete response rate with the combination of hormonotherapy, but it did not meet the threshold that was defined um, for the primary endpoint. So essentially, it's a negative study for the primary. Which, which is interesting because I do think, you know, one of the things that we hear a lot of chatter about uh, in trial design is, yes, remission is great, obviously, right? I mean, we all want to get remission, but it, it, on and on again, we have studies where we do not see the correlation between remission and survival. So you get the remission, but just as in last, where you really have this improvement in, in outcomes. So I think it's always... a lesson learned to figure out what we need to do. Um, so you mentioned earlier, Amir, that um, one third, when you talk to your patient with MDS, one third of these patients transform to acute leukemia, while two thirds actually don't, which is really important. I bet you there are people who are listening to this who did not know this statistic, because it is important. So whenever you have this patient that transforms from MDS to acute myeloid leukemia, how, how do you handle the leukemia in that patient? How do you evaluate? And, and maybe that's a good segue to talk about acute leukemia in general, acute myeloid leukemia in terms of assessing the, the, the patient that comes in the door and deciding maybe the risk stratification and so on. So you have this AML patient comes in the door. What are you going to do? Yeah, again, I, I think that's a very... Um interesting uh, subject because patients who have MDS that evolves to acute myeloid leukemia unfortunately tend to be uh, the ones who are the most challenging to treat, especially if they have already received hypomethylating agents. So if they have received HMA, azacitidine, undecitidine, and they progressed after that to AML, those patients tend to um, do uh, generally very poorly. How you um, how do you work with them depends on the particular goal of the treatment. So if the patient is a transplant candidate, sometimes you would consider intensive chemotherapy. And speaking of ASH uh, updates, we had updates on a drug called uh, Vixius, CPX351, or liposomal, uh, ven uh, liposomal cytorapine with uh, donoropicin. So this drug was shown to improve survival in uh, therapy-related AML and secondary AML among older patients who are candidates for intensive chemotherapy. Two presentations from ASH this year from the U.S. and French groups looked at the use of, of um, CPX351 in patients with lower risk, uh, sorry, with higher risk uh, MDS and found that um, um, you are able to get around 50% of those patients, depending on the response criteria you are using, uh, to um, respond and to go to, many of them went to bone marrow transplant. So it's clearly a highly selected patients uh, who are able to go to bone marrow transplant, but it seems the drug certainly has some efficacy. It would be interesting to see if a randomized study will be done to compare it to hypomethylating agents, which many of us uh, think is a good trial to do. The other approach you could do, especially if the patient is not a candidate for bone marrow transplant, is based on data that I actually presented on behalf of co-authors and you adding the Veneto class, which is a PCL2 um, inhibitor. It's it's an oral um, a drug that's given 
to patients daily. And in MDS compared to AML, it's given for 14 days only. So in, in trials, both in the frontline and the relapse setting, adding it to azacitidine, it has showed decent activity. So in situations where I cannot get the patient to a clinical trial, which is, of course, the preferred treatment after HMA failure, I I try to add venetoclast sometimes. And again, this is not FDA approved, um, it, it just investigational. But since venetoclast is already on the market, um, one of the things we can offer the patient is trying to add venetoclast. It's myelosuppressive, so the blood counts will be low and you have to manage the patient carefully. Uh, you have to do bone marrow after cycle one to make sure you hold the drug if there's excessive myelosuppression. Um, and you have to be careful about the drug interactions because this drug interacts with a lot of other uh, drugs, uh, SIP inhibitors, for example, antifungals, and you have to adjust the dose. So there are many things that are, I think, important to kind of um, know about this if, if you are going to use it outside the context of a clinical trial. And you're talking about basically specifically acute myeloid leukemia that evolved from myelodysplasia. Um, or MDS, MDS um, that basically uh, progressed on HMA. Because sometimes what happens is that your MDS progresses after the HMA. So meaning the plus count might go from 8% to 15% on the azacitidine. So it's still not AML, but this is MDS. In, in, in therapy-related AML, Using a uh, venetoclast with hypomethylating agent or CPX, those would be on label. This is FDA indicated. You can always get a hematopathologist, take them to lunch, <laughs> say, we're going to go back to the microscope. We'll do 20%. I can get the venetoclax. Okay, this is off the record, you guys. <laughs> um, so, so let's then talk about acute myeloid leukemia de nouveau, which is this disease that did not come in from MDS. Um, um, and, and, and so on. So um, what is, what's the difference really between acute myeloid leukemia and MDS? Just the percent of blast count? I mean, is there anything different or is it biological differences like, you know, in terms of how the disease evolves? No, certainly there are a lot of biological differences, but similar to MDS, the biology of AML is also highly variable. Um, you know, you go all the way from APL, which a completely different animal, acute promyelostic leukemia in terms of how it's presents, currently how it's treated, and a very high survival rate um, uh, with ATRA and arsenic uh, that approaches 85-90% uh, these days uh, for lower-risk patients who are treated in, in the big centers or with the right approach, all the way to uh, AML with very complex cytogenetics, especially TP53 mutations where those patients have a survival of only 10%. So again, a big spectrum. However, patients with AML generally um, tend to be uh, somewhat sicker overall when you compare them to MDS patients because their blood counts generally tend to be lower. Uh, AML is slightly younger in the median age of incidence. So the median age at presentation is like 68 compared to um, early 70s in patients with with MDS. However, we tend to see um, many patients with AML who are younger patients. So as, a, as someone who's a leukemia attending, this is what brings me in the middle of the night when there's a patient with acute leukemia, because those patients could get very sick and um, die within you know hours or days of presentation if they are not managed correctly, especially if they have a very white, high white cell count or they have symptoms of uh, leukostasis when those blast cells obstruct the capillaries in the brain or in the in the lung. 
So when when you're faced with this acute myeloid leukemia, though, um, risk stratification, what are the mutations you look at, the chromosomes you look at to to decide? Because is there high risk, low risk, um, intermediate and acute myeloid leukemia similar to MDS? Yeah, so they are similarly, they are different schema, but the most common used ones, the NCCN or the ELN, European Leukemia Network classifications, use three different groups, basically uh, poor risk or high risk, uh, intermediate and low risk. And people call it also favorable risk or low risk. Um, you know, I've never been a fan of favorable risk because even in, you know, in favorable risk, um, you know, the, the survival is close to 50, 60% long-term survival. And when you tell the patient this is favorable risk and they tell you, I'm gonna like there's a 40% chance I'm gonna die in the next five years, and you call this favorable risk. So it's somewhat, you know, relative to 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 the uh, more aggressive forms. Um, but the way we decide on these are actually linked mostly to the genetics uh, in terms of the karyotype as well as the molecular um, features. So compared to MDS, where we look also at the blood counts and uh, the blast percentage. In AML, those two are not involved. So the, the main two things we look at for AML are the karyotype, the genetic abnormalities, as well as uh, the presence of uh, certain genetic alterations, such as core binding factor leukemia, um, the presence of um, certain genetic recurrent alterations. Talk to me a little about the, I mean, we, we see a lot about FLT3 and NPM and, and all of that. Well, how, do you do those all the time? Like, well, how do you um, how do you factor these in in some of your um, risk stratification? We're going to talk about therapy, but in risk stratification. Yeah, so those are actually pretty standard now. They should be done, and they are really the available. I think in most centers. Uh, so uh, those are the abnormal that you should always get in any patients with uh, AML in the workup is karyotype, the conventional cytogenetics the fluorescent in cytohybridization, and then you get the FLT3. So FLT3 is um, a, a genetic alteration that happens in close to one-third of patients, so it's common. Um, it, it's classified in two big groups, FLT3 ITD, internal tandem duplication, which is uh, three-quarters of those uh, 35% of patients, and then you have TKD, which happens in one quarter. Um, this tends to confer a negative prognostic impact, we often tend to recommend transplantation for those patients. Um, but beyond the prognostic impact, we have drugs that inhibit them. So compared to MDS we were just talking about earlier, in AML, we are actually having more and more uh, targeted therapies, meaning that you go after certain alterations. So you apply the concept of precision medicine or individualized medicine more commonly in AML compared to MDS. Uh, in addition to FLT3, we look at MPM1. So this is also common, around 40% of patients will have NPM1 mutation. In contrast to FLT3, NPM1 is actually a good mutation to have. So having uh, that mutation tends to improve prognosis. You have the mutation called CEPPA. So having two mutations of this, or double mutation, is also associated with good uh, prognosis. And then there's a bunch of other mutations that we recommend getting uh, in the guidelines, such as IDH mutations, 20% of patients will have an IDH mutation, which also have targeted therapies. There are other ones such as RANX1, ACXL1, TP53. Those don't have 
approved targeted therapies, but they tend to worsen the prognosis of patients. So those molecular alterations are important not only for prognosis, but also to guide the treatment. So when I was in, in training um, as a resident and even as my first years of fellowship, um, the treatment of AML was um, seven days of uh, cytarabine, continuous infusion, and three days of anthracyclines. And I'm going to tell you that the most important question that has been like tens of papers on and so much debates on podiums and so forth, do we use, were two questions. You may laugh at this today, but there were two questions. One is, do we use low-dose donorubicin or high-dose donorubicin? And the second question was, do we use donorubicin or idarubicin? And I can't tell you, I'm sure you know, but I can't tell you how many debates I've listened to. <laughs> that, was, that was the hottest thing in AML at the time. So, 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 so tell me where we are now. I mean, you know, I, I presume we are not now at seven and three anymore. We probably resolved, hopefully, the question of dose and which intracycline. Are we still where we were 20 years ago? No, I'm, I'm glad we moved away from these discussions, but you are right. For a long time, unfortunately, and you would be like surprised how many thousands and thousands of patients went on trials to look at different doses of donorubicin and, you know, as you were saying. And I, I think, again, those are important questions, but probably were more important back in the day when we did not have anything that improved survival beyond 7 plus 3. So 7 plus 3 actually has been described in the early 70s. 1973 was one of the first papers about it, and it's kind of funny because it's connected to 7 plus 3. But for almost 40 <laughs> years... 40 years, and I don't think this is presented in any cancer where you have like been using the same treatment for 40 years until the year 2017. So it's not, you know, when you graduated from fellowship, it's probably many people who graduated even 2015 or, or stopped doing leukemia work. Some way similar to how I feel with multiple myeloma, like, you know, after I left the fellowship, tons of new drugs have come into this space and it has been very difficult to um, keep up with. Since 2017 in AML, we had nine drugs approved for AML beyond 7 plus 3. So it's it's an incredible um, number of um, new developments. However, 7 plus 3 still remains, um, you know, the mainstay of treatment of many patients, but we have a little bit of variations that we apply to it. For example, if you have a FLET3 mutation, we add a FLET3 inhibitor. The current standard is midostorin. Uh, this is a FLET3 inhibitor that was shown in the ratified trial to improve survival in patients who have FLET3 mutations, so 7 plus 3 with midostorin. However, there's a large number of other FLET3 inhibitors that are being tested right now in, in clinical trials. So um, there actually was a recent press release of another FLET3 inhibitor in the frontline setting called Kizartinib uh, that was shown to improve survival also in combination with 7 plus 3, but compared to placebo. So 7 plus 3 with kizatinib versus 7 plus 3. Um, and there are another one called giltritinib that's approved in the refractory lab setting. Also, we talked about Vixius or the liposomal vincristin uh, with, uh, sorry, the liposomal cytarapine with uh, donorobicin. And the idea here is that when, when you are doing a fixed molar ratio between the two drugs in those nanoparticles, they seem to be delivered to the bone marrow environment more selectively. So there is less toxicity with this um, drug. Uh, anecdotally, actually, it doesn't cause hair loss, which many patients will be surprised are very 
happy about, but uh, it seems to also has less cardiotoxicity. And it has been shown to improve survival over 7 plus 3 in patients with um, acute myeloid leukemia with therapy-related EMR. You also have IDH inhibitors. So we have two uh, drugs that are approved uh, for IDH1 and IDH2 mutations. And those happen in 20% of patients. Uh, those are approved in the refractory lab setting, uh, but also there are trials that are combining them with 7 plus 3. However, this is not yet shown to improve outcomes, so it's not a standard practice to combine it in outside of clinical trials. And then there's what we like to call vitamin B or venetoclast because it's being combined with everything almost now in, in hematologic uh, malignancies. This has been a major game changer in, um, in AML. We're adding venetoclast to hypomethylating agents, specifically with azacitidine, has been shown to improve the overall survival in older unfit patients with AML. The median survival with the combo was 15 months compared to nine months with azacitidine alone. What about myelotarg, Amir? So myelotarg is actually one of the very interesting stories. And again, you probably have uh, had it back in the day when you were in fellowship because it was approved um, uh, some time ago and then it was withdrawn uh, from the market. I think it was withdrawn in, I think it was approved in 2000, was withdrawn in 2010. And then it was reintroduced in the year 2017. It has a very interesting story of... uh, development that probably don't have the time to talk about today, but it's an antibody drug conjugate. So it's, um, I tell patients, you know, it's like a drone. You are delivering the chemotherapy component, the calicitomycin, by linking it to a CD33 uh, uh, targeting antibody. So most of the myeloid cells have CD33, and it's generally uh, restricted to the myeloid uh, bone marrow environment, so it doesn't cause a lot of toxicity, although it does in some patients can cause liver liver issues like VOD. Um, it's a drug that's actually approved in combination with also 7 plus 3. So I was actually on service two weeks ago and I just gave a patient 7 plus 3 with uh, gemtuzumab. It has been shown in patients with core binding factor leukemia to improve survival uh, when you combine it with 7 plus 3 over 7 plus 3 by itself. So that's approved, but also it's used as a monotherapy in older patients who are unfit, but the survival is not that great. So most people will not use it as monotherapy. They would use azacitidine with venetoclast instead, and also for relapsed refractory patients as monotherapy. So my 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 question to you then, um, we talked about, and I know we don't have a lot of time to cover everything. We talked a lot about the induction therapy, all of these. Is your goal of acute myeloid leukemia always after induction that you are going to take these patients to an allogeneic bone marrow transplant? Or are there patients that you think you can spare allogeneic transplant? Because we all know after induction for AML, 100% of patients will relapse unless you do something after they achieve a remission. So um, we, we don't have time to go over all types of consolidation, but I think transplant is the one that always comes to mind. So tell me, how when do you decide you're going to do transplant versus not? Yeah, and that's, again, a very good question because you're right. I mean, with AML, historically, induction can lead to remission in many patients, but if you don't consolidate it further, the leukemia will come back. Um, typically, patients who have core binding factor leukemia or favorable type of AML, 
so 821 translocation in version 16 and patients who have um, a double CEPPA mutation or NPM1 positive disease without FLIP3 or other bad genetic markers, those patients generally you can uh, avoid a bone marrow transplant if you give them in consolidation, multiple rounds of consolidation, which in the U.S. typically is hydrocytarabine. Um, however, some patients still relapse. And if a patient, of course, has relapsed leukemia, the only way to try to uh, have any sustained uh, survival would be with a bone marrow transplant. There are other patients who you need to go to transplant, you know, from the get-go, uh, such as those who have complex karyotype. In the intermediate risk, it depends on uh, the specifics of the patients. Do they have a good donor or not? But also, we started to include um, MRD, measurable residual disease assessment. So it's not only achieving remission. How deep is the remission? And there are a lot of nuances to, to this, and whether you use a genetic assay or do you use flow cytometry, what is the best time to look for it? So, so it's an area that continues to evolve. But the short answer to your question is that, yeah, there are patients who you can cure without a bone marrow transplant. And these are the ones that you said, the core binding factor leukemia ones, Correct. where you can try to do that, the rest you do. Um, anything earth shattering about acute mild leukemia at ASH? I think you alluded to a couple of things. Anything else at ASH that struck your, um, came across your uh, radar? Yeah, no, I, I think there are like actually two or three presentations that I think are going to have important consequences. One of them was a randomized phase three trial. We, we, we discussed that azacitidine with venetoclas has become the standard of care for older unfit patients with AML as a frontline treatment. Uh, so one trial was presented in ASH that looked at adding an IDH1 inhibitor called ivocidinib to azacitidine compared to azacitidine alone. And that trial actually has met its primary endpoint. Uh, there was an improvement in the overall survival. The primary endpoint was event-free survival, but the overall survival was also improved 24 months versus seven months. Um, so the main two issues with this uh, approach clearly is that the IDH1 mutation is not that common in AML. It's only 5 to 10% at most of patients with AML will have IDH1 mutation. While venetoclast, you don't need any particular alteration. You could use it in anybody. So it's, it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's not targeted to the mutation. The second approach is that this trial tested azacitidine with ivocidinib against azacitidine, while the standard of care clearly is azacitidine with venetoclast. So it's an inferior comparator, which I'm sure, and you know, I've been following your broadcast, and I know you discussed that <laughs> multiple times with with uh, with some of my colleagues. I think there are different reasons why this approach was used when the standard of care somewhat changes in the middle of the trial, and some of these trials accrue outside the U.S. mostly. So I think um, what we have right now is two, two regimens that are clearly better than HME monotherapy, but the real trial that we need right now is is azacitidine with venetoclast versus azacitidine with the ivocidinib for patients who have the IDH1 mutation. Another important trial that was negative is actually adding to azacitidine, adding the FLIT3 inhibitor, so giltritinib. So there was a randomized trial called the Leeswing trial, and this trial um, compared adding azacitidine uh, with giltritinib to azacitidine alone. In contrast this to the other trials, this, this was a frontline, this giltritinib, which 
Yeah, this was in the frontline setting. So giltritinib is approved right now in the relapsed refractory setting, not in the frontline setting. So this trial looked at adding it to azacitidine compared to azacitidine alone. This trial was negative. Um, so basically, there was no improvement. And this trial was actually terminated early um, oh. based on um, lack of um, futility, basically, like that the combination is going to lead to better outcome. But there was actually a lot of debate in ASH about you know the design of the trial, the endpoint, uh, whether some segments of patients, for example, patients who have high var variable allele frequency or high mutation burden of the of the ITD uh, FLT3 mutation might benefit. So I don't think the door is completely closed on the FLT3 um, approach in the frontline management of older patients. However, this particular approach is not likely to to be it. And then you have a large number of trials that added something on top of azacitidine with venetoclast. So as you know, azavin is a standard of care. So now we are going into this triplet approach. And I, I think there are two implications for that. One of them is that uh, the division of our classical approach of intensive chemo candidate versus non-intensive chemo candidate, which is always the other debate that we always had in addition to which anthracycline to use, that is also starting to blare a little bit. So we are giving treatments more and more to patients who potentially could get intensive chemo. Um, but we are realizing some of those patients are probably not best served by giving them intensive chemo, even if they can get it physically. So those would be the younger 60-year-old patient, patients who have complex and bad cytogenetics. So it might not be um, a bad idea to kind of consider some of those approaches rather than intensive chemo in those patients. And I think the other approach that we are getting into, which is very exciting for us, is that there is there are oral versions of hypomethylating agents, and that's opening the door for double oral therapy, which, you know, I still I would argue would probably be completely something we cannot imagine five years ago, is that you can <laughs> give two pills to an AML patient, like, you know, oral HMA with venetoclast, and you can get them into a, a complete remission. You know, we always like to tell everybody that Oral chemo does not mean it's not chemo or it's oral. It, it still can be toxic. You still have to monitor the patient. It's still an AML. But I think that prospect is, is very uh, intriguing to all of us who treat these patients. Absolutely. Amir, this was great. I can't believe we covered so much, so much ground, actually, in the past hour about MDS and AML. Uh, you're the, um, you know, as my guest, is there anything I should have asked you about in terms of AML and MDS that... Uh, is really important to share with listeners that I may have overlooked. No, I, I think you covered things quite well. I, I do think that things about how um, uh, treatment is shifting to be more personalized in AML is, is very interesting because we still have, it's very difficult to keep up with all the new developments uh, with, uh, in, in any cancer really these days. So I do encourage your uh, listeners to always consult or call their colleagues who do these type of diseases because there's always new interesting trials, there's always new approaches and continue to enroll patients for MDS trials as well because MDS is few years behind AML all the time so I'm hoping for an explosion of new drugs over the last five, next five years similar to what happened with AML. Where is your next trip? 
Well, I'm hoping it's going to be to Jordan to see my family, but you know, you never know with the COVID situation. But uh, well, by the time by the time this airs, there will be things will be hopefully uh, COVID is going to be endemic, and uh, you know, we we do what we can, and uh, so uh, I hope you get to see your family very soon. Okay, well, thanks everyone for listening. Thank you for your support. Thank you for uh, providing all of the feedback and sending that to me. And don't forget, if you are a loyal listener, you get one of the amazing Healthcare Unfiltered podcast t-shirts, gray colors or black colors and free for anyone who is interested, who has been very supportive of this program. Don't forget, you can let me know how I'm doing. You can direct message me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan, or you can send me an email through my website, www.chadinabhan.com. You can watch all of these episodes on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Thank you again. And before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with what Albert Einstein once said, learn from yesterday, live for today, hope for tomorrow. The important thing is not to stop questioning. Until next time, take care.